Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief for Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the September Atoms. Well, we'll start with a few very interesting papers which indirectly are all related to regulation. The first one, Fresh Air, Part 1, looks at the progress in the reduction of asthma morbidity in high-income countries and the reasons that it is stalled. Over the last decade, very little progress has been made, and though one explanation relates to individual management, environmental exposures are likely to be at least as important. So the WHO and EU take slightly different slants on what their emphasis should be. The WHO puts more emphasis on fine particulate matter, the main sources of which are vehicle emissions, home coal burning and power stations. And the EU is more stringent on nitrogen dioxide. Chapu and colleagues in Paris undertook an ambitious five-year study assessing the association between particulate levels, particularly PM 2.5, and asthma exacerbations. In a very ambitious study, they assessed more than 1.2 million ED visits, of which nearly 50,000 were asthma, and examined the association with air quality around and preceding the episodes in terms of nitrogen dioxide, ozone and PM2. These were collected on an hourly basis from the Regional Meteorological Laboratory and adjusted for other potential climatic variables and RSV density. In the multivariable model, only the PM2, i.e. fine particulate matter, remained predictive of incidence of asthma episodes and a watershed level of 13 micrograms per metre cubed, below that of the EU advisory mark of 25 this paper is my editor's choice for the month, as the authors an accompanying editorial by Vardulikis suggests current regulations perhaps need review. Continuing in the fresh air theme, we have an excellent leading article by Bean on tobacco and health. This has been a story of a number of legislative waves, and there is still some way to go. An estimated 1 billion people worldwide smoke, the practice incurring an estimated 1 trillion worth of societal costs annually. Meta-analyses estimate reductions in preterm delivery of 3.8%, severe asthma exacerbations of 9.8% and severe pneumonia of 18.5% through the introduction of smoke-free policies. There's more evidence in the form of reductions in child mortality and increased tobacco taxation in North America. Add to this the effect of even third-hand smoke and safety issues around e-cigarettes and it's clear there's still some way to go. In this context, the WHO has drawn up an aid, the M-Power framework, to governments of both high and low and middle-income countries to implement legislation. Read this piece and remind yourself just how big the scale of this burden is. Preventing the preventable. In a final policy paper this month, Uday's article on rickets and vitamin D guidance in the UK is an interesting read. Despite sound policy in the post-war years, the decline appears to have set in after a spate of cases of hypervitaminosis D in the late 1950s, which, though attributable much higher doses than were actually recommended, led to withdrawal of fortification. The paper is encapsulated in, in a figure three, a map of comparable rates of adherence in Europe, which illustrates preventable discrepancies really beautifully. We'll move now to global health. In fact, global, global health. 
In a highly practical paper, Trevor Duke outlines the etiquette and pitfalls inherent to writing a thesis. I've always felt that the key is to keep the research question simple, with clear exposure and outcome definitions. And this detailed piece describes every stage of the process from establishing the objective to grant proposal to the writing process. Though the piece was originally drawn up to help postgraduates in Papua New Guinea, it's generalisable to every aspiring researcher, whatever the setting. So a genuinely global piece. As you probably already know, all global health pieces in archives are now free access, a great step towards information dissemination to those working in settings without their own or institutional access. Developmental assessment is a difficult skill to master, and even after acquiring the prerequisite skills, the process is time-consuming. Other than time, traditional testing is limited by reliance on receptive communication and fine motor skills. So the innovation described by Toomey is intriguing. For better or worse, and I'll spare you my thoughts, touchpads are now effectively ubiquitous, so familiarity to children should not be a problem. The authors undertook a very practical proof-of-concept validation of a touchscreen software application in a group of children aged between 26 and 34 months about whom there had been no developmental concerns. No verbal instruction was required for testing and areas tested included selective attention, working memory, hidden object retrieval and object permanence. Performance completion rates and working memory increase with age, so with riders about generalisability, of course, this comes under the promising bracket. I'll end in a place where all interesting stories start, a hypothesis-generating paper. About a third of all children admitted to intensive care with sepsis develop post-traumatic stress disorder. It's known that children with post-traumatic stress disorder have physiological dysregulation, one manifestation of which is a higher evening cortisol. The adult literature has shown that those treated with steroids are less likely to develop subsequent PTSD. These strands led Bircher and colleagues to examine outcomes in a group of children admitted to intensive care with sepsis or meningoencephalitis and compared those treated with steroids and those not. They measured salivary cortisol and validated impact of event scale. The group was heterogeneous and numbers small, but those treated had lower IES scores and non-significantly lower evening salivary cortisol. Bias and confounding, of course, might be explanatory, but given that those treated were more likely to be sicker and at the higher end of the complication risk spectrum, then if anything, the direction of effect would have been in the opposite direction. As PTSD is associated with pro-inflammatory states and that steroids can block memory retrieval at the hippocampal level, there are plausible biological pathways and these intriguing findings should not be discounted. Thanks for listening. You'll find much more on the ADC website.